Good morning, everyone. So glad you're here today and uh, trust that you're ready to meet with the Lord. Let's um, ask his blessing on our time. Father in heaven, this is your word. This is your day, the Lord's day. It's the best day of the week. It's the day in the week that we're reminded what's really important and really who we are. Our value in life does not come from what we do. It comes from our relationship with you. And that's why we need this day, and that's why we need this text. Because we are so prone to get hung up on circumstances and environment and neglect uh, the reality of the power of Christ that um, could set us free, could heal us, could give us the mercy and grace to help in our time of need. And so we come asking for you to meet with us through your word. Lord, I pray specifically for um, folks today who are in this building or will hear this message on our podcast, who are at a crossroads moment in their life, who would describe themselves as desperate. And I pray that today, with two choices in front of them, they would choose the path that runs them directly to Christ's feet. So, Lord Jesus, meet with us and use our time in the Word to pour grace into hurting hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I mention the word desperate, I wonder what comes to mind. Perhaps you think of a desert wanderer looking for water. Maybe you think of a mom who is frantically searching for a lost child in the mall. Or maybe you think of those that image in um, the news after Katrina in New Orleans of people on top of their houses with cardboard signs that said, help us. When you think of desperate, maybe you think of a boy trapped in a river that's raging, trying to come up for air. Or maybe you think of a husband who's in the middle of a counseling session with tears in his eyes who says to the counselor, you know what, we really need help. Or maybe you heard of the man recently who was all alone in a building trying to fix a furnace when the furnace fell on him and was trapped and had to amputate his own arm in order to set himself free. That's desperate. In fact, you probably know this phrase, desperate times call for what? Desperate measures. You see, desperation could be defined as having an urgent need, an urgent desire. Usually it's related to some kind of crisis. It's Think of it as a fork in the road of life when you realize, oh no, I'm in trouble and I've got to take some pretty radical action steps. It's realizing that desperate times do indeed call for desperate measures. And the scary thing about those moments, and we've all had them, is that suddenly you realize that the problem was much larger than what you anticipated, and what you do next will really make all the difference in the world. You see, that's not only true in life, in moments when we find ourselves desperate, it's also very true when it comes to your soul. Desperation, realizing that you're in trouble, has a way of revealing not only who we are, but also what is really going on inside of us. And your response to kind of that crossroads moment of desperation will really have the potential to show you amazing things about Jesus if, in your desperation, you run to him and not away from him. Our text this morning, Matthew 15, 21 to 39, shows us two examples of desperation. On the one hand, we're going to see a woman, a Canaanite woman, who runs to Jesus and says, Lord, help me. And on the other hand, we're going to see the disciples who just flunk a test big time. And you're going to see two desperate moments and see two very different responses. And my hope is that some of you who are here today at a crossroads moment, that today would be kind of a defining moment for you. And you would say, agreeing with this woman, Lord, help me. And for those of you who 
aren't there today, but will be there months, years from now, that you'll know when that crossroad moment comes and you're desperate, what you do in that moment and where you run makes all the difference in the world. And my hope is that you will not ignore Jesus in the middle of your desperate crisis. Because that is a real temptation. So, two things and then some application points. The first is that I want to show you that desperation can lead to faith. And I want to show you this about this woman Our text indicates that Jesus moved from his um, kind of Jewish mixed culture in Galilee where he was serving to a very non-Jewish environment. He moved from the Sea of Galilee area up to an area called Tyre and Sidon. It was Phoenicia on the coast. And this area received a fair amount of rebuke from the Old Testament prophets who viewed these folks in Phoenicia as pagans and involved in all sorts of pagan practices. So this region that he's going to is known for its non-Israelite nature, race, and custom. So this is a region that is way outside of the nation of Israel. Matthew describes this woman that comes in contact with Jesus, and we see that this woman comes up to Jesus, or rather his party. Matthew describes her as a Canaanite woman from that region. Mark, in a parallel account, describes her as a Gentile, comma, a Syrophoenician by birth. So both Mark and Matthew use some language here to really make the point that this woman is way outside the nation of Israel. She is a descendant of the kind of people that when Israel came into its promised land, they kicked these people out. So this woman is far outside of the kingdom. In verse 22, we find that this woman was following Jesus and she continually, that's the sense in the original language, kept crying out something. And here's what she says. She says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. So apparently this group of people that Jesus is traveling with has this woman in their their midst or maybe towards the back end of the crowd and she keeps crying this out over and over. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed. Now this statement that she says here is loaded with, with a lot of meaning. She says, have mercy. She's pleading with Jesus to take pity on her. Notice there's no argument, there's no rationale, there's no justification, there's no sort of bargaining or anything but just pure have mercy, have pity, have compassion. Jesus, look at my condition and the condition of my daughter and please have mercy. This is an unqualified request for compassion. And then she says, oh Lord. Now this is a really significant Word. She greets him with this term, O Lord. The Greek is kurios, and it's used throughout the New Testament. It's a big-time word that refers to one's power as master, owner, and supreme. It's a word that is connected with the deity and the power of Christ. It means that Jesus has the authority. He has the authority. In effect, he really is the Son of God. In fact, this word is so important, this word Lord, that the Bible tells us that no man or woman can say Jesus is Lord unless they're empowered by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 3 says, No one confesses Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. So the acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord, that he's king, that he's sovereign, that he's ruler, that he's master... That's an important designation, not only in terms of who Jesus is, but also in terms of our understanding of his rightful rule. And then she says, son of David. 
This is Matthew code language that Matthew introduced to us in the very first verse of his gospel. Hopefully you will remember this and make me a happy pastor that you remember that at the very beginning of Matthew, some 30-some messages ago, we looked at the very first verse which says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And from the very beginning, I've tried to help you understand that this gospel account is not just a story. It is a theological work that Matthew uses stories in the midst of it in order to tell us that Jesus really is the one. He's the Messiah. And that little phrase, son of David, is the connector that he really is the Messiah. So when this woman says, O Lord, son of David, she appeals to Jesus with this messianic term. She's saying... You're the Messiah, you're the Master, you're Lord, have mercy. And then she tells him what her problem is. My daughter is severely oppressed. We we don't know what was happening here. We don't know if it was an obvious outward manifestation in terms of some kind of physical ailment. Because often demons were connected with blindness or lame um, in the feet or something of that sort or violent sort of actions. But we don't know. She just says, my daughter is severely oppressed. So we can conclude then from her appeal that this woman believed that Jesus had the authority and the power to heal her daughter. And she addresses him as a woman who is desperate and yet had faith, believing that Jesus could help. Now what happens next in the text is a bit disconcerting. Because it seems as though Jesus treats her rather unkindly or with an uncharacteristic harshness. The first thing that he does in verse 23 is he does nothing. So she cries out to him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed. And verse 23 says, But he did not answer her a word. And apparently this went on for a little while, and he continued to not respond. He didn't even acknowledge her request, and there was no way that he didn't hear her. His silence prompted the disciples to get a bit annoyed because the woman kept on crying out to him and Jesus wasn't answering. And apparently she was persistent and the disciples said to Jesus, send her away for she's crying out after us. Make her stop. And then we see that Jesus says something even more troubling. Verse 24, Jesus responded to their comment by saying this. He says this to them. After they said, send her away, Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In other words, I'm ignoring her on purpose because I was only sent to Israel. Now, Jesus is saying something true here. Mark 10, he told his disciples in verses 5 and 6 to only go to the house of Israel. Yet at the same time, there's been examples like in chapter 8, for instance, when Jesus did minister to non-Israelites in the case of the centurion and his servant. So... At face value, this seems like a strange thing for Jesus to say. Well, the woman apparently heard Jesus say this. So the disciples said, send her away. He says, I've only been sent to the house of Israel. The woman must have heard him say this because her next action is very dramatic. She, according to the text, comes very close to him, probably coming from the back of this procession, running right up in front of him, falling at his feet. And now it's her and Jesus locked in a dialogue. And she's right here at his feet. And she says to him, Lord, help me. So she's been crying, 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 crying out. Disciples, send her away. I'm not sent to these folks, only the house of Israel. She then comes and kneels at his feet. Lord, help me. And she's pleading with him. And then Jesus says something that's even more difficult to stomach. He says, 
It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, I don't think that Jesus is necessarily degrading her, saying that she's a mangy mutt. Rather, I think what he's saying here is that it would be improper for a person to neglect his children in order to take care of their pets. He's not saying she's a street dog. What he's saying is that in a family home, it would be improper for someone to give food to their dog and neglect their kids. And and you know this to be true. You have any friends that treat their dogs or their animals too much like their children in the house? And you just want to say to your friend, hey, just so you know, that's an animal, okay? Just just so we're clear, that's an animal, okay? Great, love them, but it's an animal, okay? I I had this experience um, that I wanted to say this. I was traveling on an airplane, and um, please forgive me if you have one of those small little white yappy dogs, but this is what happened, okay? Um, So in the seat next, uh, two seats over, this woman and her husband were traveling, and she found... Um, this container that she could put her little white yappy dog in and um, then it could go underneath the seat. The problem was that apparently this this pooch had been pampered throughout its lifetime, which tends to go with white yappy dogs, but that's a sidebar. Um, and and so the, the dog, the white yappy dog, didn't like being in this little container underneath the seat. And so true to form and its character, the dog yapped through the entire flight. So then the owner, trying to make the dog quiet, which we were all hoping she would do, would unzip the the doggy little kennel, and the dog would stick its head out, (laughs) and then was stinking up the cabin. So the choice was dog breath or yap, choose your pill. And so it was really an uncomfortable flight. And then the stewardess would come over and tell the woman, look, you you can't have your dog out. That was the rule. And she's like, but it's it's, it's barking. And I wanted to say, this is what these dogs do. They yap, you know. So this is, and, And she said, well, just so you know, if this dog comes out of the container, you won't be able to allow to take your dog on the flight anymore. And that's when I thought, that's a brilliant idea. (laughs) And I thought, why? An airplane is made for people, for children, not for yappy white lap dogs that yap all the way through the course of the flight. And I wanted to say, next time, please check that thing, will you? Right? So there's just a sense that, and just so you know, I I just feel a lot better that I could get that off my chest. So that's... (laughs) So... The reality is you know people that treat their dogs as well as their children or even better than their children. And what Jesus is saying here, that just doesn't make sense that you would give what you intend for your children to your dogs. That's why, you know, kids get in trouble when they take their food off of their plate and and feed their dogs at the table. So I don't think that Jesus is necessarily being offensive. What he's doing is he's challenging her. And we'll see why in a moment. The woman's response, though, is amazing. So get this, she's at his feet, she's cried out after him, she says, Lord, help me. And then Jesus says this dog thing. She says this, verse 27. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Her desperation here eclipses everything else. Who doesn't care the, the metaphor, the analogy, doesn't matter how long she's been crying out. Doesn't, she's lost all reference point of sensibility and pride because... She knows that if he just says the word, there'll be an answer and her daughter can be healed. Her desperation eclipses everything and she's begging Jesus to help her. And then verse 28, Jesus' final statement brings relief to her and us who read this passage. 
his tone changes dramatically. He says, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. That's an unbelievably comforting statement. And as a result of that, Jesus grants her request and her daughter is healed. Now this, this text has beguiled me all week. Why did Jesus talk this way to this woman? Here's why I think he talked this way. Jesus was testing her. He was not being rude. He, he, has, he has plans for her beyond just the healing of her daughter. And the testing of her desperation revealed where her real trust and real faith was. Jesus was pushing her, not away, but pushing her along in order to make the depth of her faith clear. He was tough, but he wasn't unkind. It's, it's sort of like what a coach might be to an athlete. If you took the coach's words out of context and just heard what he said, get up, get in there. If you just heard someone talking like that at, let's say, Marsh, you might be like, what's going on across the aisle? You know, get up, give me 50. And you're like, what's going on? Is it hold up or what? You're like, what's going on over there? And yet if it's on the football field, you know, oh, I know what he's doing. He's, he's pushing for an intended outcome. Jesus' testing here of this woman was not designed to discourage her. No, it was designed to surface the beautiful faith that was implicit within her heart, which is why she came to Jesus, and she passed the test. Put away all sense of pride, sensibilities, and all sense of what other people think. All she knew, if I can just get him to meet this need, then, then I'm willing to do anything. So desperation can lead to faith. Desperation can also lead to despair. Let me show you another example on the negative side of the equation. The text now turns to the failure of the disciples. Verse 29 tells us that Jesus left that region. He went back to Galilee and began a very intense healing ministry. Look at verse 30. It says, And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled um, healthy, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And the result, verse 31 says, they glorified the God of Israel. So imagine this moment. Word begins to spread that Jesus is there and he's healing people, and people start bringing their relatives. I mean, imagine, if your mom was crippled, and, and you brought her to Jesus, and he healed her, and suddenly she starts walking... I mean, imagine what that environment's going to be like. And suddenly now, a neighbor of yours has a blind son, four years old, and Jesus touches him, and he can now see. This is filled with emotion and power and joy and excitement. These are people who had been stuck in the outcasts of society, and they met Jesus, and they were healed. This was a beautiful scene. People were brought to Jesus, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then, So the disciples are seeing all this. And then in the middle of this, Jesus says this in verse 32. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Now, this should sound very familiar. Chapter 14, Jesus has already done a great uh, miracle of feeding the 5,000. But this is different. 
Jesus doesn't say, you give them something to eat. And curiously, we have this miracle, and then we have, we have the miracle of the feeding of 5,000, and now we have this miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, and they're very close in proximity, both in Matthew's account and Mark's account. And it's almost as though Jesus, in this text, when he says to the disciples that he has compassion on them, it's as though he leaves the problem hanging. I think he gives them a softball pitch. They had just seen him feed, probably in estimation, 15,000 people from five loaves and two fishes. And then Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. They've been here now three days. They've got nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Right? I mean, that, that should, should, if you've seen him feed 5,000, that should prompt you, oh, hey, yeah, I remember this. If you're reading the passage, you want to yell at them. Hey, boys, look for some bread and some fish, right? Look around. Last time that worked pretty well. Go find a little boy with some bread and fish and then give it to Jesus. But instead, they don't do that. They miss the cue. They miss the softball pitch. Jesus leaves it hanging, and the disciples instead fall into crisis. They say, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Now, I don't think that they're like, hey, where are we going to get, uh, hey, where are we going to get some bread? I think they're like, where are we going to get bread? These people are starving and this place is desolate. The last time they had this miracle happen, it was a village nearby. They suggested they send them away. Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. In this context, they've been, they, they haven't eaten in three days. There's no place to get any food. And Jesus says, I have compassion. I don't want to send them away hungry. Q, you should be doing something here. They miss the cue, and the problem is, is they don't see that the answer is standing right in front of them. So then Jesus asks the disciples a question. Here comes the second pitch. How many loaves do you have? I, there has to be an element of sarcasm here. There has to be. How many loaves do you have? And that's when they, I think they start to catch it. Uh, seven. And a few small fish. So suddenly this really should be ringing some bells from the past, but it, it doesn't. Verse 35, And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. It's a huge crowd. And after sending away the crowds, he got in the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So notice the contrast. This woman had faith. The disciples didn't. The people left full. And I have to imagine the disciples left empty. Once again, they had let the circumstances of life eclipse what they should have known about Christ. Once again, the circumstances of life trumped their past experiences with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I am so glad that we have this kind of stuff in the Bible. Because if the Bible just told story after story after story of people just like the Canaanite woman who's got great faith, I'd be really discouraged. Because if I'm honest, and I think you're probably the same way, you can think of countless times in your life when even though you've learned it over and over and over and over and over, a crisis comes and you just are like, ah, panic! And you're despairing. Even though you've seen God provide over and over and over and over and over. And here the disciples fall into that category. They, they miss the potential power of Jesus. They didn't draw from the lessons of the past. The pressure of the circumstances around them 
caused them to fail this test. Their desperation didn't lead to faith. It led to despair. And for that matter, I, I think that the reason that Matthew puts this here is not to show us that Jesus can make lots of food out of seven loaves and a few fish. He's already proven that. The miracle here isn't, I don't think, about Jesus' power, and its close connection to the story with the Canaanite woman leads me to believe that the real point of what Jesus is trying to, to communicate to us through this text and what Matthew is trying to show us about Christ here is that there's a connection between Jesus' power and moments of crisis, moments of desperation, if we will simply say, you know what, I'm in a tough spot, so Jesus, would you help me? Desperation is a crossroads moment, and it really presents an opportunity for faith or despair. And my guess is there's some of you here today that you're at a crossroads moment like that. Or maybe some of you can think of a time in your life when you were at a crossroads moment and everything you knew about Christ was so real on Monday and when Tuesday came and the crisis hit, it all went out the window. And can I just give you some comfort and hope? Just take, take heart. Twelve, eleven men who changed the world, they did the same thing. And yet over time, God helped them to really begin to trust Him in new ways. And this is a Savior who's very willing to be patient. But maybe, maybe today we could think about and dream about what it would be like if we actually could in those crisis moments say you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna say lord would you help me so here's what i want to do i want to encourage you to not miss jesus in your crisis you know that can happen in the middle of your crisis you become either angry or bitter or you become so focused on the circumstances that you never realize that the greatest opportunity for you to learn things about who he is and to rely on him and to receive his power, his mercy, and his grace, he's standing right in front of you, but you miss it. Here's some things that I want you to remember when it comes to crisis moments. The first is this, is that God designs spiritual tests. Take your Bibles and go over to James chapter 1. God designs spiritual tests. The first truth that I want you to grab a hold of is just this simple reality that God not only designs tests, but he has a purpose in everything that happens. And this is what James tells us. James tells us very clearly. Verse verse 2 of chapter 1. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers... When you meet various trials, that, that word joy doesn't mean like, woohoo, happy. It means this deep-seated contentment, this deep-seated sense of, you know what, God's got my back. It's the kind of grace that I've called painful grace. When you're hurting and you know what, you know what, God's got me. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials... Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So you know what's interesting to me about that verse? Verse 3 says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So what James is saying there is count it all joy because you know that this testing produces good stuff. But here's the thing. Why does James tell them that? If he says you know this, why tell them that? Here's why. Because testing of any kind makes us prone to question if there really is a real point to all of this. And if you want to find somebody who's in the pit of despair, find somebody who's in suffering who thinks, ah, oh, it just happens by chance. 
the reason why the sovereignty and the supremacy of God ruling over all events, including hard things, is so important, is that if you undermine the supremacy of God in all things, and if life is just a bunch of things that happen by random chance, then there is no security, no safety, and there is no linking of these things together. Things become pointless, and life becomes futile. But if, if God has testing and there's a plan to it, oh, that means that although you can't see what is really happening, you can still trust the God who you know is in control. And that is why the who question is always more satisfying than the why question. Secondly, here's an important principle. Hard is not bad. Say that with me. Hard is not bad. I see many believers make this mistake. They assume that good things come to good people and bad things come to bad people. Does that happen? Yeah, it does. But I got news for you. Bad things happen to good people. And it comes from a fundamental flaw in our thinking that hard is bad. You spend any time with someone from a former generation, some of our senior citizens, folks who went through World War II, Great Depression, one of the tragedies of our present generation is we're, we're losing, those, those folks are, are, are dying, and we're, we are losing this understanding of what real hardship is like. And, you know, we laugh about, you know, some old man saying, you know, when I was a kid, we walked up to school, up the hill both ways, you know, or, you know, that's not difficult, we didn't have any shoes, or, you know, all this, this, this life is really hard, but the reality is we live in a soft culture. We define suffering like traffic problems <laughs> or an ATM fee that was three bucks versus a buck fifty. I mean, that's, we, we describe suffering in really shallow terms. And yet what happens in moments of desperation, if you're not careful, you'll think that hard is bad. But hard isn't bad. Hard can be very good. Take your Bible, go to 2 Corinthians 1. Again, the case I'm trying to make here is that you ought not miss Jesus in the midst of your crisis. And I want you to see the beauty of what it means to have the kind of faith that this Canaanite woman had, the faith in Christ, the kind of faith that Christ can give you, if you will, but kneel at his feet and say, Lord, help me. Notice Paul's just radical, different perspective. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 8. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we, had, we, we felt we had received the sentence of death. Ever felt like that? I, I'm going to die if I have to deal with this one more day. And then I love this verse. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. <laughs> I love that verse. This was so that I could remember to rely on God who, oh, by the way, raises the dead. That is a stellar passage. But so often we're too busy talking, too busy complaining, and really we we aren't realizing that, look, hard is not bad. Those of you who've been involved in athletics, done any weightlifting, you'll know that no pain is what? No gain. Same thing when it comes to to your experience in Christian life. In fact, there's a, a trainer at the gym that Sarah and I belong to 
who uh, I love to watch him work people out. I feel really bad for the people that he's working out sometimes because he just really gets on them, and, and the guy really knows his stuff. And there was one time he was doing what looked like a fairly introductory workout, and this woman that he was trying to train was really complaining. I mean, everything he asked her to do, she was just complaining, and then she got talking and everything else. And finally he got so exasperated that he used shame in order to motivate her. While she's on the ground looking at him, talking and complaining, he stands up and loud enough for the entire gym to hear, said, too much talking, not enough working. And oh man, that got her moving right then. (laughs) Too much talking, not enough working. Reality is, I think we all know that can be true spiritually as well. Too much complaining, too much commiserating, too much murmuring, too much why me. To realize, you know what, hard is not bad. Oh, please, parents, teach your kids. Hard is not bad. It produces great things. Third, desperation reveals what we really want. This word despair is a really powerful word because it it demonstrates that sometimes we get tipped into a realm where we just really freak out. And because of that, we really end up revealing something deep within our hearts. Tim Keller has got a great book called Counterfeit Gods. Here's what he says about the difference between sorrow and despair. He says this, Sorrow is a pain for which there are sources of consolation. Sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others, so that if you experience a career reversal, you can find comfort in your family to get you through it. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. Something you have to have. I can't be whole if I don't have this. i got to have this. And when you lose the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternate sources to turn to. It breaks your spirit. And Keller defines this as the crux of idolatry. And desperation reveals what you really want. This is, this is what desperation does. Imagine your life to be like a beaker with sediment at the bottom or a Diet Coke bottle that's on the shelf. And what happens is something comes along and it hits your beaker or it bumps the bottle. And before you know it, pssst, or sediment begins to rise. And what looked like a very clear solution, a very um, inert sort of liquid, suddenly is demonstrated to have things within it that now become clear. And this is what desperation can do, can, can produce in your life. It can reveal what you really want, positively and negatively. And that is why it's so hard, but also why it's such a great opportunity. Number four, your view of Jesus determines your destination. Listen, in both stories, we had people in crisis. The woman needed a miracle, the disciples needed food. But the great difference between them is the simple fact that the woman saw Jesus differently than the disciples did. She ignored her circumstances and focused on Jesus, whereas the disciples ignored Jesus and focused on the circumstances. So the question really becomes a matter for us, do you really believe that Jesus can help you? Do you really think that he can intervene? Do you really believe that you need his help? Do you really believe that getting Jesus involved will change things? Do you really believe he has the power to make a difference? You need to learn how to live with Jesus in your life. So I applied this very practically last evening. Got home from an event here at church and my wife said, oh, I, I lost my phone, I can't find it and we're leaving on vacation and couple days and i was like oh no so we so she went back to the church trying to find it couldn't find it and then i called her on another phone i said you know have you found it no and 
And I said, okay, I'm going to run over to church and try and look as well. And, and just, you know, I hate losing things. I just, that is like, like number, eh, maybe number three irritation in life. There's like yappy dogs, top of the list. But anyway, so, um, there's like, it just really is irritating to me. And I've often said, Lord, you know where it is. Please don't waste my time. Just show me where it is. I mean, come on, just boop, 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 show me. Because this is a waste of everyone's time. And plus, I'm probably going to sin. So let's just all agree it's a bad thing and show me where the phone is. So as I'm getting in the car, we're all frustrated, and I'm, I'm, I'm getting in the car, and as I came around the outside of the car, I said this, Lord, help me to pass this test. Help me to pass this test. I want to pass this test. I got in the car, started driving over here to church, and dialed her phone, hoping that it would be somewhere, it would ring, and, and it, I'd done that four times earlier, got her voicemail, and uh, then I, I dialed the phone, and all of a sudden, a man answered the phone. And I was like, He's the creep who stole it. I got him. So I was like, hello, this is Mark Vogel. Who's this? And he, the person on the other end of the line said, this is Jack Hogan. He's a staff guy here. And I was like, Jack stole my wife's phone? What's this about? I didn't think that. And I said, Jack, this is my wife's phone. Praise the Lord. Where is it? So I was left in the auditorium. It's here in the front of the stage. I'm like, oh, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jack. I'll be picking it up. Two minutes, hung up the phone, Jeremiah was with me, I smacked him on the shoulder, and I said, see, Jesus answered our prayers. He said, yeah, that's great, Dad. I said, and I didn't sin. Woohoo! <laughs> Double bonus. Jesus and your view of him determines your direction. Finally, listen, the way up is down. You live by dying, friends. One of the most important things about this passage is the contrast between the women's actions and the disciples. She gets at, her, at his feet and pleads with him, Lord, help me. She knew she needed to get to Jesus. She's willing to abandon every element of sensibility, pride, and pretension. She just keeps begging for mercy. She's desperate to get to Jesus. And this, friends, is one of the most important things. It really is the first step, even in coming to Christ. Jesus says, unless a man denies himself and takes up his cross, he cannot be my disciple. It's only the humble who receive mercy. It's only the person who says, I'm a sinner and I need you to save me. It's only that person that receives Christ and it's only that person who continues to receive mercy from Christ the rest of his or her life. So no one comes to Jesus for anything unless there's a fundamental denial of self. In other words, let me just bottom line this. The first thing that you got to get over is you. you got to say, I am done with me and get on your knees in front of Jesus and say to him, would you help me? You live by dying a thousand times. And the moment of crisis, and the moment of desperation, when you're at a fork in the road, and you get to decide, am I going to go to this, this despair, or am I going to go to faith in Christ? The difference between those two is what you think of Jesus, what you think of yourself, and whether or not you are willing to be like this Canaanite woman and get on your knees and say, Lord, would you please help me? Would you please help me? Put away my pride, my pretension, the sense that I can do it, and I just need to say, would you help me, please? You see, the difference between despair and faith is what you do with Jesus, how personal you make him, and whether or not you want him to help you, not just once, but every single moment of your life, especially when you're at the crossroads of life and you're in a position of desperation.
Don't you bow your heads with me here and worship too. Lori's going to come and here's what I want to do this morning. She begins to play. I know there's got to be some of you here today who are, um, you're at a crossroads moment in your life. Maybe today was just the day you decided to come to church. You just happened to come here and it's like God designed this message specifically for you. In a moment, I want to just pray for folks who are at a crossroads moment who are maybe heading down the path of despair, having to choose the pathway of faith. And what I want you to do in just a moment is I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are and I'm going to pray for you. And the reason I'm asking you to do this is because like that woman, there needs to be some sort of definitive step on your part to say, Lord, would you help me? And although maybe kneeling might be even a better response, I think that this morning just for you to stand and then... I want to pray and just ask the Lord to give you grace. So this is really between you and the Lord and, and this moment that you're in. Maybe you need to repent of despair. To say, Lord, I've been trying to do this on my own. So if that's what your need is this morning, as Lori just continues to play, would you stand here and worship too? Lord, I'm desperate today. We're not going to take long, so move quickly. Will you here or also in worship too? Just stand. If you happen to be near someone that's standing and you know them or they're a brother or sister of Christ, it'd be great if you just kind of put your hand out on them and just touch them, grab their arm, put your hand on their back, just to say, Lord, I'm standing here with my brother. Anybody else? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for these folks who are standing here today and you are the only one who knows what's really going on in their hearts and that is enough today. And and we, like this Syrophoenician, this Canaanite woman, say, Lord, would you help us? Lord, we're at crossroad moments, we're at moments of decision, and it would be way too easy to go down the path of despair, to think this is an ultimate thing, and remind these people that you are the ultimate thing. That it's all about you, to know you, to know the power of your resurrection, even if it means fellowshipping in your suffering, that we might attain the resurrection from the dead. That's what we pray for over these dearly beloved believers. Oh Lord, I pray today that you would pour out your grace into their hearts. I pray that you intervene, Lord, that you'd provide the the strength, the support that's needed, and that today might be a defining moment where a new path is now ventured on a path of faith and no longer a path of despair. And so, Lord, increase our faith. We, like this woman, say, Lord, help me. Help me. Lord, Son of David, help me. And we believe that you're going to answer our prayers according to your will, and we can trust you that you know what's best because you are our King, our Master, our Lord. You are Jesus. You have saved people from their sins. And we ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you. If you need someone to pray with you afterwards, we'll have some folks up here, all right? God bless you. Thanks.